I was hanging out the towels. We were trying to save the world. I was picking up the house. Why don't you put it down? Come over. Come over. Hello. Welcome to Femidish, a podcast about food through a feminist lens. We seek to explore the intersections of food and feminism by sharing the stories of women throughout the world and celebrating their unique abilities to nourish themselves and their communities. My name is Sandy, and I am here with my co-host tonight, Hope. Hi, Hope. Hey, everyone. And we are very excited for our guest tonight, Dr. Alex Ketchum. She is the faculty lecturer of the University for Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies of McGill University. And she is the recent author of the book, How to Start a Feminist Restaurant. Hello, Alex. Hi, it's nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for being here tonight and talking with us. Um, I already have so many questions for you, but tell our listeners where you're calling in from, how you're doing tonight, what's going on for you right now? Sure. So I'm calling in from Montreal, Canada, and I'm, I'm doing pretty well for the quarantine. It's I've settled into it, I would say. That's good. That's good. What has Canada been like as far as some lockdown stuff? You know, we're here in the States and have a have a perspective about things, but what is, what's it been like in Canada? Yeah, so we started to lock down pretty early, especially Quebec. So we really started our lockdown on March 13th. And now things are starting to open up a bit more. Um, but, you know, it's kind of like in and out with certain decisions of things opening and closing a bit. But they've overall been a bit more on the cautious side. Um, but our numbers are pretty flattened right now. So um, it's feeling a little bit more optimistic and uh People, not everyone, of course, but people have been getting uh, consistent uh, payments every month um, from the government. So that's definitely helped. Small businesses are really struggling and a lot of people are struggling, but um, comparatively, things are looking up a bit. That's good. You don't always hear the terms like looking up right now. So that's really nice. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's really great. Well, you speaking of small businesses and stuff, um, let's talk about feminist restaurants. You have that book, How to Start a Feminist Restaurant. What is a feminist restaurant? What makes it a feminist restaurant besides maybe just being owned by a woman? Yeah, for sure. So uh, the book that you mentioned is a tiny booklet, um, and it's based off of the research that I did uh, for about 10 years on the history of feminist restaurants. Uh, so a feminist restaurant by my definition, is it was self-defined. So it was a restaurant that called itself feminist because I didn't want to uh, say whether something was feminist or not. I wasn't interested in using my own definition of feminism, but I was more interested in why the founders or owners of a restaurant would call their space feminist. Uh, They were primarily, they were in the 70s and 80s, but you can still see feminist restaurants today, but really the high point is like the late 70s, early 80s. They were spaces that were oftentimes focused on women's needs. Now women becomes kind of a contested term there of who's included or not. Oftentimes they're focused on lesbian feminist needs. Uh, They were spaces in which uh, cooking was something that feminists could make money from, in theory, at least not all of them were financially successful. Um, There were spaces for socializing, political organizing, and activism. 
and they were all over the United States and Canada. I mean, there's also examples outside of the U.S. and Canada, but I primarily look at U.S. and Canadian examples. Awesome. So what what would make it, like you said, the their needs? You talk about that they meet those either lesbian needs or feminist needs. Like what is what does that mean? What would a what would a feminism a feminist restaurant look like? Without giving away too many of the answers in your book, how would you make a feminist restaurant? Oh, I'm happy to give away these answers. All of it's like available. All of that type of stuff, the like historical <laughs> stuff especially, is available for free on uh, this public history website I run called thefeministrestaurantproject.com. So I'm happy to say all of that. So, okay. Spoiler uh, alert, everyone who's going to buy the book. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so it, because the book itself is more of like a handbook of actually how to do it if you want to start yourself versus kind of the history of them. So what makes them different than other restaurants, especially what made them stand out a lot in the 70s and 80s, but we even see parts of this in feminist restaurants today, is they differ, one, in layout. So they typically would have large windows that opened out onto the kitchen. Now we see this more today in this kind of like open design, open kitchen space, but that was pretty rare in the 70s and 80s. And the reason they did that was political they wanted to really break down those barriers of who was doing the cooking and who was doing the work. So they wanted that labor to be apparent. Uh, they would have customers order their food and pick up their food at the counter, maybe busk their own tables. Um, part of this was also many of them didn't have waitresses because they wanted to disrupt the hierarchy that's in a lot of restaurants with kind of the manager over the waiters and waitresses, with the serving um, group and then the customer. So they want to disrupt that. Uh, there's also practical reasons why, because like, they didn't have to hire as many people. Um, and then they also were different in the way that they organized their management. So they tended to be run by collectives. Uh, not all of them, of course, but many of them were run by feminist collectives, which rotated their members like over who was doing which role. So who was doing the food ordering, who was doing the cooking, who was doing the prep and all of that. Uh, so those are some like the kind of bigger differences that you see. And you can see how kind of like mainstream restaurants have taken on some of that. There was also contention around the issue of tipping. So money, exchange, labor, and pay were always big issues within these spaces. And I don't want to give the idea that they did them, did all this perfectly. They didn't. Um, they were experiments. A lot of times they were started by people who hadn't worked in the restaurant industry before. Uh, so there were there were some issues there, too. Now, I, I find this very interesting because I never realized, um, I guess I never really thought about what a feminist restaurant was or that it was like a thing that could be studied. Um, but I'm actually drawing a connection. My mother-in-law worked for a or worked at a restaurant, which was a collective um, in Brattleboro, Vermont, okay, cool. several decades ago, I think in the 80s, now that I'm thinking about it, maybe it was into the 90s called the Common Ground Kitchen. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I'm just like drawing all these parallels from stories she's told. And, and one of the things she said about the collective was all of the decision was um, made together as a group. And so she just said like the decision making process without like a, a, a boss or a manager was just very lengthy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that was something that came up a lot in interviews I did with women who ran these restaurants or worked at these restaurants or stuff I found in archives was that very long meetings, uh, oftentimes a lot of contention over how things would run, especially if they wanted to 
collectively agree on everything. So yeah, that, that tended to be a theme. And also you see that in other kind of social justice restaurants as well. So for my research and what I was interested in, I didn't necessarily include anarchist restaurants. I didn't necessarily include all kind of countercultural restaurants because that would have made it way too big. I was already looking at about 250 restaurants during a period of like 72 to 89. And then since that larger project, that was my PhD dissertation work, I've also looked at more contemporary feminist restaurants as well. I worked at a few restaurants, um, you know, a few years ago, and there was stories from the guys in the kitchen. It was typically, you know, males in the kitchen, not all the time, a hundred percent, but you know, mostly, mostly males. And they would talk about like the, that there were uh, chefs that they had worked for in, you know, in Maine, but also um, other, other states that they had worked in where they would do that, like moving around of hierarchy, like you said, or kind of like, you know, one day someone does the purchasing, someone else does the next day, but they would do that as a form of like power dynamic and control. Like they did it to Mm. be like, a one day like this guy is, you know, the sous chef and this one's a line cook. And then like the next day they would, the chef would switch them and, and mess with the, with the hierarchy. And it would, and, but it was, it was always framed negatively that like they would do that Mm. just to like create chaos in the kitchen and like have the chef have like a weird sense of control over things. Hmm. Yeah. That's a very different framing. I mean, maybe the end result was sometimes the same um, in some situations where, you know, if someone didn't know how to order or how to do the cooking, uh, there's a case in a common woman restaurant in Northampton, Massachusetts. And there was this one time where one of the women who worked there was really interested in cooking the desserts, but she never followed the menu that they had made in advance. So she would use up all the eggs. So when other people went to cook the other dishes, they didn't have eggs. So you can see issues like that. But a lot of these places were quite experimental and they were about kind of living out one's politics. So a lot of them kind of had political contradictions. So I describe it as this kind of triangle where on the one hand, they wanted to make sure that they were getting really good food, good quality food, and that they paid their farmers well, right? They had good products, they got Um, good sources of ingredients and that they were compensating people properly. And there's kind of an awareness around things like uh, farm workers being mistreated and so forth. So this kind of move for many of the restaurants to kind of buy local foods and so forth. Then on the other hand, they wanted to make sure that the employees were paid properly and had living wages. And on the other hand, since many of these restaurants were women only, or they were spaces primarily catering towards women, and especially lesbian women, and since women get paid less, plus lesbian women, especially during this period, were getting paid less, and there were a lot of working class lesbians coming to these spaces, that they didn't have as much money to buy expensive food. So some would have things like sliding scale dishes, or like a cheap soup and bread option, but it's really hard to have good quality food that you're paying the farmers well for, paying the people working there proper wages and having menu items for cheap, it's kind of an impossible triangle to balance. So what oftentimes would happen was that the people working there were just not really making any money um, and weren't able to get paid. And then that led to a lot of worker burnout and the kind of end of these restaurants. So it's a really hard triangle to try to balance. And I think we can see this today in a lot of restaurants that want to have strong ethics 
with what they do. Wow. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's, it's, it's tough. Like you think about any sort of like, um, organization at whether it's a nonprofit or, you know, a restaurant or something that, um, has really high values and they want to meet them. But sometimes in practice, like the reality is that you might not be able to do some of those things. Like even at, you know, at, at a nonprofit, you might not get paid as much as you would if you worked in the private sector. And, um, you know, there's all these administrative tasks and now you're like spending a lot of your time going after grants when maybe you're not doing the work mm-hmm. that you want to do as much anymore. So it's, um, it's like so much of these are, are lofty, you know, really important values that they want to express and how do you really make those actionable? Yeah, definitely. And you can see this, like, even though right there with that example is focusing on the seventies and eighties primarily. Um, if you look at Lagusta's Luscious, which is a vegan feminist chocolate shop, and there's like a cafe and commissary in New Paltz, New York. So run by Lagusta Yearwood and it's a really queer friendly space and, they have really high environmental ethics, and she's trying to give her workers health care and proper wages, but also like pay for really good chocolate and not exploit people. Um, it makes it really it makes it really hard. And she writes about this a lot on the social media accounts about trying to create that balance and what that means for her in that constant tension because we live in a capitalist society, right? That makes it really difficult to find this balance. Yeah, you you talk about in your research about this idea of utopia, um, mm-hmm. and it seems like this is similar to what kind of we're talking around that same idea. Like, so these restaurants are formed because they have a vision of utopia and what they want the world to look like, and so let's you know create an organization that will meet that. Um, so I'd love for you to talk about that for a minute, and then also I was thinking about like you know sometimes these like uh, organizations, for lack of better words, entities are formed not so much out of like, okay, I'm going to start a restaurant tomorrow and I want it to be a feminist restaurant, but it maybe starts because like, okay, you know, we're a collective of people that view the same things the same way. Maybe, you know, we're experiencing these same forms of oppression. Like you said, maybe some of the lesbian women weren't making enough money. So they start, okay, we're going to start sharing food. Okay. We're going to start purchasing. And then it just like grows into something like that. I'm even thinking about like, um, you know, the, um, the, the beats in San Francisco in the fifties and sixties, you know, they started the bookstores and they started these little like cafeterias and stuff just out of the, like, you know, a fact that they were all congregating together and talking about things. And so it just like morphed into something like that. So would you want to spend a minute just like thinking, is, is that how some of these formed or was it more intentional that it was going to be a restaurant and, and the idea of utopia in creating that restaurant? So there actually are examples such as in Massachusetts, there was a woman's consciousness raising group that was meeting quite regularly, and they decided that they wanted to do something. They wanted to have something that felt actionable, and they were wondering what to do. And so they were actually inviting different speakers to come in and talk about the process of starting a business and speakers Uh, who started different businesses or had been involved in different feminist businesses. So you can actually listen to these recordings on tapes at the Northeastern University Archives, which is pretty cool. And uh, they decided that they wanted to start a restaurant after listening to these and make it kind of a community center coffee house thing because they heard about how intense the workload was of having the full-time restaurant with at least that you had to keep up. Uh, so that was one example where that happened. And then there's other examples 
where the people who started it had worked in the food industry, so they wanted to create a restaurant that reflected their ideals more. There were examples of women who just, they really liked food. It was a skill set that they had, so they thought they could make money from it. And then there were also women who chose food because food brings people together. It's really great for community building. And then to address the question around utopia, so utopia is kind of the framing that I use. Uh, some of some of the feminist restaurant owners, like those at Bloodroot, feminist vegetarian restaurant in Bridgeport, Connecticut, which was founded in 1977 and still exists today, so you can visit it. Um, so when I asked them about if they saw it as utopia, they didn't necessarily see it as utopia, but rather as just their commitment to their feminist ideals and making the world that they wanted to see. Um, because I think for some people, utopia is kind of a loaded word, but I personally am interested in conceptualizing some of these spaces as utopic because I see utopia like feminism as not static things, but things that you work towards too. Like they're a process of working towards. So for me, it's an interesting way to kind of conceptualize it. Um, and I also kind of write about it as utopia as a way to link my different research projects together. Um, you, you're talking about linking your different research projects together. What other research projects do you have? So we've been talking about the um, Feminist Restaurant Project. Yeah. Um, so I have, uh, I'm really into having projects and creating websites for them. And I get very passionate about certain topics. Uh, so within the food world of my research, I was the co-founder of Food Feminism and or. Um, food Feminism and Fermentation, uh, which was an organization where we had a multi-day international conference talking about the confluence of those three themes or that as a theme together. And we released a few open access journals, like edited collections, so anyone can read them on the internet for free and uh, released a publication. So that was one project. Uh, the Historical Cooking Project, which I'm happy to talk about, I'm not sure I really see that as utopic, but also um, outside of my work on feminist food studies, I also am interested in like feminist technology studies. So I, that's how I kind of link this utopic idea, but it's not really about food, but yeah. You have so many different research projects going simultaneously, and I feel like there must be some more obvious intersections between them. You have food and feminism and feminism and fermentation and um, history and environmentalism. How do all of these interconnect or what is your favorite? How did, how did you get to all these different subjects? Because you're saying you like to have these different projects and you get very passionate about all of them. But where did the, what's the commonality? Where do they all stem from? Yeah, so um, with those projects, for me, the links are pretty apparent of kind of linking food, feminism, environmentalism, fermentation kind of like underneath that. Um, and then I'm a historian, my PhD is in history, so I tend to always put things in a historical context. Um, but part of it also came from just kind of my personal interests and my personal background. So I went to Wesleyan University for my undergrad, and while I was there, I was one of the co-organizers of the school's organic farm. And I was also doing um, a degree in feminist gender and sexuality studies and also studying history, although I didn't finish that major because I'd already gotten into grad school. So I was like, I'll save the money and graduate earlier. Um, but when I was working on those, uh, like 
doing feminist studies. I'm working on the farm and I co-founded this living community house called Farmhouse, which was about food politics. And I was like, how can I bring all these things together? Um, and I was really thinking about kind of household labor and cooking within the household and how it, a lot of the discourse around uh, making one's own food and slow food at that time. So this is like between 2008 and 2012 was when I did my undergrad. And a lot of the discourse really put the onus on women. So I was looking at the gendered uh, discussions around environmentalism and food movements. And at that time, a friend said, oh, have you checked out Bloodroot? It's this really cool feminist restaurant. Uh, it's about a 40-minute drive away in Bridgeport. So Wesleyan's in Middletown, Connecticut. And so we drove there. And then that kind of got me really interested in feminist restaurants. And then I went to grad school and wrote and researched about uh, feminist restaurants. And then uh, out of just my own interest in food, I started doing a lot of fermentation projects, primarily making a lot of beer at home and brewing at home. And um, I met a colleague who, um, Maya Hay, who was working on feminism and fermentation from a really like theoretical way, but also embodied in terms of she was doing these experiments with uh, creating cheese from different people's hands. Uh, and we decided to work together to kind of throw this conference um, that brought together theorists, academics, artists, and makers. So we had a bunch of women who were involved in the brewing scene in Quebec. We had people from all over Canada, um, sourdough making artists uh, from Ireland. It, it was a really cool uh, conference. Um, Sounds so, so fun. Working on Thanks. Yeah, it was really exciting. And so I worked on that for a while. Um, uh, at the start of grad school, I had to take some courses. And I was taking a history class about um, British Empire and colonialism. And one of the texts the professor, Dr. Elizabeth Elborn, assigned was uh, this book that was given to or written for new um, British immigrants to Canada. And so that book, we, it was a cookbook, but it also had other kinds of household tips. And what I, I really like, I was enjoying reading it, but I thought it would be so great to actually cook from the Canadian Immigrants Guide. And so I talked to a couple of friends who are also historians, and we started a historical cooking group where we would pick a different cookbook each month and cook recipes from it and write about it and place it in history. And from there, it started with Catherine Partrail's book. Uh, but from there, we explored different uh, recipes and cookbooks from around the world. And we worked as a collective for about 18 months. And, it was, and then in about uh, 2015, 2014, uh, everyone else got really busy. So I decided to just keep managing it. So that's uh, one of the other projects. So I do talk about gender stuff a lot on that uh, website as well. Um, there's about 300 posts there uh, at this point. So... Yeah, that's that's really fun. I was able to click around on that and there's just all kinds of different stuff. And I, I loved the history ones. Like, I think that, you know, looking back at 1950s Better Homes and Gardens and like then going back to like the funky recipes and ingredients and terms for food in the 1800s, like that kind of stuff is I like I could read that all day. That's so fun and interesting. Thanks. Yeah, it was also like a really nice way to kind of 
work with my research and in a really fun way with a different type of writing. And it's been nice because over the years, a lot of different food study scholars have written for it and different students. And this past year, I was teaching a course on food, gender, and environment. And I had my students actually go to the McGill University archives. And we had uh, archivists from the uh, medical archives, which medical archives oftentimes have a lot of cookbooks because food is medicine and so forth. Um, and the other archives and students got to meet with the archivists and pick cookbooks and then write up um, posts about them. So that was really cool, too. So Hope and I are part of a, um, I'm going to call it a collective here in Maine, and give a shout out to the Women for Food Potluck. Um, I'm laughing as I uh, as I say it because it's just a really fun um, project that we've been on for a while. And it sounds a little similar to what you were saying at the beginning of how you got together with some colleagues and others and started making things out of the cookbooks, you know, with, with a much more like um, intentional reasoning and project and work behind it. Um, but we are been part of for over two years now, maybe three, actually, I think it's three years now that if I really look back at three years now that we've been, um, in this, um, in this group and it's just women that live in our town that, um, and we have a potluck once a month and the list is like maybe 75 to hundred people now. And it's all just been through word of mouth. It's not a public thing. It started with maybe a group of 10 or 15 or less of just emailing and then it grew and grew, and now we have this big list, and we sometimes have up to up to twenty people or so at a different pot, at a potluck on a given night. And it's been totally um, uh, just organic, you know, no pun intended. Like there's yeah. been no 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 obligation to attend. It's truly just if you want to come that night, then you come and you bring something, and we all hang out. And it has been such an such an important um, activity that I've been a part of over the past few years, and so many other people feel feel very similar about just you, you meet people, you're gathering around the same um, I, ideas and values and stuff. And um, there's just been so much, so much positivity that's come from it. Um, we've had to stop, unfortunately, because of Corona, obviously. And I don't know when yeah. we'll maybe pick it up and do some sort of like social distance potluck, but um, it's just, it's a very, uh, I'd call us a collective of women that are very intentionally gathering uh, with each other around food. That sounds amazing. Yeah, like with the historical cooking project, it's funny because originally I just thought we would cook. And the first time we had a meeting, there were a lot of people who came. It was with the Par Trail book. And it's a pretty like famous book if you're thinking of food history in Canada. Uh, it recently was released again um, with Natalie Cook had written um, a foreword or new opening to it. Uh, and she was at the meeting, which was cool because she was on a, she was on my PhD uh, committee. Um, but then over time, it just became four of us. And I originally thought we would just be cooking. And Carolyn McNally, who was part of the original group, uh, suggested we make a blog. And I really owe her a lot because due to that blog, I ended up getting really into making lots of websites and getting really involved in kind of public scholarship and history. So. Uh, yeah, but just being able to cook with other people is so nice and so nurturing to the soul. And I think that's been a very difficult thing with the pandemic of not being able to cook for people and eat with people. Definitely. I find I'm less inspired because it's just, I mean, I cook for my husband and our children every night, but I'm, you know, we don't ever have a guest. We don't ever have, you know, we, mm -hmm. we've had my, 
my little one turned three during the pandemic, but it was like very low key and he wanted pizza. So it was like, we made pizza, but you know, it's just all of those things that might inspire you to go like a little more, you know. Well, I will say hope when we had this potluck at hope's house and shoot, because it, it rotates who hosts it. It's just a volunteer. Anyone can host it any month. Um, hope, uh, volunteered for her first potluck that she hosts. And you, that lady put on, she realized that some people had different eating restrictions. Oh, I'm a vegan. I'm a vegetarian. The girl made nine <laughs> different ratatouilles for everyone. Wow. Like this one is a vegan one. This one has sausage. This one has you know, chicken stock in it. And it was like all these different types of bread. And if you want cheese and oh, you want goat cheese, you want cow cheese. I mean, there was, was a lot of like, requests. Oh, like always accept an invitation to a dinner at Hope's house because you will not be disappointed. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Yeah. Um, well, but Alex, uh, I would love to hear some of the specifics when you were talking about the different intersections of feminism and, you know, everything um, like, like specific, like feminism and fermentation. What, what does that mean? What does that look like? Yeah. So it's on a bunch of levels. So I really come at things from more of like a labor perspective. So that's what I was kind of bringing uh, to the table. So I was really interested in the gendered history of fermentation work and when women are in charge of it and when women lose control of it or men take charge of it. So like with the history of brewing, for example, women were primarily brewers. Um, it, there's a long history and it depends if you're tracking like beer history in like Europe or in the West. But basically what happens is when things can become profitable, they become industrialized and men take them over and women get kind of pushed out. And then, then there's like new movements to get women back into brewing. So you see things like the Pink Boots Society and uh, projects like that. So I was really interested in kind of the gendered labor around fermentation, uh, who's doing the cooking, who's doing the fermenting, who's passing on traditions of lots of types of fermentation. Uh, Maya Hay, who is my colleague on that uh, project um, and collaborator, she was really interested in kind of how fermentation disrupts a lot of the ways that we think about boundaries. So we can think about gender boundaries and binaries. We can think about uh, other types of binaries within our social context and how fermentation actually shakes that up, disrupts it, and even disrupts the idea of what it means to be human. So in that way, it's almost like a post-humanist feminism. Um, so that's on the more theoretical side. So, and a lot of the people who came to the conference and contributed to the kinds of publications, they were artists who were definitely reckoning with different ideas about fermentation and rot and gender and both from the work side and the theoretical side. So what about feminism and environmentalism? Can you give us some examples there? Yeah, for sure. Um, and I guess this is the way I can kind of talk about uh, the class I taught as well, um, because I was tying food, gender, and environmentalism, and gender and kind of feminism related with that. So we can think about the ways you probably, a lot of your listeners have heard of the term environmental racism which is the way that a lot of environmental devastation and climate change and pollution disproportionately affects uh, racialized communities, communities of people of color um, and people in the global south. Uh, but also uh, a lot of pollution disproportionately affects women. So women working in unsafe 
factory conditions, a lot of household cleaning products from that angle, um, the effect of pollution on women uh, who are pregnant and so forth. So that so there's both environmental racism and environmental sexism. So we can also think about the ways that a lot of the kinds of compensations or adaptations we've been making due to climate change and pollution are also gendered. So for example, if you look at the kind of zero waste movement, like who are the people who t typically buy the food and groceries for a family, right? It's gendered work. It tends to be women disproportionately. So when we're making choices or putting pressure on people to buy foods from a bunch of different stores where they're buying bulk items and so forth, right? That's requiring a change in labor and change in action primarily by women. The same thing with like changes over what we do with waste and composting, changes in encouraging people to buy from CSAs or farmers markets. While these are all really good initiatives, the burden disproportionately ends up on women who are oftentimes the ones in charge of, but not always, but often in charge of buying the food, cooking the food, saving the food, discarding the food, signing up for the community-supported agriculture, going to the farmer's market, oftentimes feeding their children. And we also see this happening when there's a lot of rhetoric about like unhealthy eating, right? Who gets blamed? It's oftentimes mothers. So those are a few of the different ways that it's gendered. Um, and then you can kind of think in this kind of Carol J. Adams, who wrote The Sexual Politics of Meat Way, about how the meat industry is like highly gendered and who gets better cuts of meat um, and who eats more meat is quite gendered as well. So there's a lot of ways that it um, intersects. And then beyond just gender, um, within feminism, if you're looking at disability and racism, that ties to environmental racism. It ties to the fact that like people with disabilities are going to be more heavily impacted by climate change and by pollution. So there, it's on a lot of levels, actually. So I can totally relate to this as a mom. Um, you know, I think a lot of the judgment is it's internal judgment where I'm kind of judging myself because I am capable of producing and affording, you know, wonderful, healthy, well-balanced meals for my children. Um, it doesn't mean I don't give them cereal bars for breakfast sometimes, a lot of times. Yeah. And it just seems like there is this, um, it, it doesn't really matter if you manage to overcome all these other barriers as a woman and as a mother, they're just a does seem this extra layer of expectation around food and pro producing food. And I don't necessarily mm -hmm. mean producing food in a um, classical sense as far as like, I don't, although I have a very large garden, I don't think anyone's like expecting me actually to go out and forage necessarily or judging me if I do not. But that what my family eats is a reflection of who I am and, and whether or not I'm a good mom or a good wife. Um, and I'm saying that as like someone who, feels that they're in a very um equal partnership with their husband and you know very progressive you know relationship with most of the people in my family so it just seems like this is like another layer of oppression that you know despite whatever other layers that we've removed over the years as women um this one still exists and is that a, a subconscious thing is that you know where is that coming from and well pay Peggy Orenstein has this really good um, essay. I think it was in the New York Times. It came out in like 2010, I want to say. I don't know. It's very influential on me. Um, but 
of thinking about the ways that this pressure just continues um, to be placed on women. I think a lot of it has to do with marketing. It has to do with this continued second shift expectation that even when people do have like good balanced partnership in their own partnership, like disproportionately women take on these like cooking and caring roles. Um, I think it has to do with uh, the way that people are socialized in terms of like women being taught to cook oftentimes by their families at a younger age. Uh, it has to do with marketing, right? There's like so many different ways that this is reinforced. And even when you're trying to be so conscious of it, like we continue to reproduce this. I have this issue. I continue to reproduce this. Um, and then especially when uh, children get involved, it just oftentimes becomes even more intensified. Uh, so, yeah. So if you look at like yeah. who the articles are being written towards and directed towards. Well, it's, it's interesting. Like, I hope you just said it's another way of oppression that this still exists, but it's also like, so we're acknowledging that all this extra burden is on women to, you know, purchase the healthy food and create the healthy food and healthy lifestyles and buy the no waste things, you know, the, the, you know, care about how much plastic that you're consuming and, you know, the packaging of all the food. And are you, you know, what did you feed for your kids for breakfast and all that? Um, when really those individual choices, even if we all made them, they're never going to be, in my opinion, as much of an impact as if an, like governments and, and you know, really large organizations made sweeping changes. So my, our little changes that we try to do, um, you know, that's the, the, we, can, we can do that as much as we want. And maybe uh, together, if every single woman in, you know, in the world did all that, it might make some changes. But really, the biggest changes, I think, will come from governments and large multinational organizations making really big changes in policies. And those are primarily run by men. <laughs> yeah, I am in complete agreement with you there. So like, even though we can have like impacts in our lives and how that makes us feel in the food we're eating, it's definitely on the governmental regulation scale, right? Like it doesn't matter if I decide to use like a zero waste diet, like there's such a greater impact that the government bans plastic containers, right? Like yep. single use plastic containers. And a quick that will have such a exactly. And um, same thing with the kind of plastic bag bands that we've started to see as well. And by putting the onus on individuals, it is a way of distracting, right? It allows Absolutely. corporations to get away with things. Um, and it has to do with also these kinds of corporate histories of like BP oil introducing the carbon calculator, for example, um, to make it seem like it's individual choices. Right. When they're a giant oil company that could decrease carbon emissions so much more quickly and across the board than any individual choice could, could do. And of course, it's another way of continually uh, putting more blame on the people with the less means to be able to navigate these systems. For example, if you live in a food desert, it's going to be a lot harder to get fresh fruits and vegetables, right? And then it's another way of creating shame and poverty shaming and of course, class is um, quite racialized within both the United States and in Canada. So these choices aren't even available yeah, to everybody. The, so, yeah. the, that's a such, such a good point to kind of highlight. And I just want to touch on that real quick, because um, when I was much younger and lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, I lived kind of a few different places in that area. But at one point, I moved um, to 31st and MLK in Oakland, California. And if anyone knows that's listening about Oakland, you'll know that that area is very 
So it's a very, it's, a, it's an area with a lot of challenges um, and it would be considered a food desert. And now we had a car. And so I would just go, you know, down the street, which wasn't far because I had a car to Berkeley Bowl in Berkeley and buy great food. But in my immediate neighborhood, for anyone who didn't have a vehicle, accessing food would, would have just been like this impossibility. And now that I am a mom and like, I can think back on like what, what it was like living in that neighborhood and kind of how out of my way I went, even as a vehicle owner to access good, decent, healthy food. Can't imagine if I had had, you know, my two children that I have now and did not have a car, how on earth would I have gotten the foods that I got back then to, to feed my family? It's just, I, I really think people who don't live in food deserts, who have never experienced life um, without a vehicle, they just really don't recognize the extra burden and challenge that puts on, especially women um, to feed their family, to get healthy food. Cause I could have gone to the bodega and bought, um, you know, instant rice noodles for dinner. <laughs> yeah. And of Would course you... then that's an, Oh, Oh, please go. Oh, I was just going to say, and of course this was then an issue of like accessibility and for people with disabilities living in a city, right. If you can't transport your food to your house, um, as well as like issues over like containers and what things are held in. Because I think that's an important thing to remember too, is within a lot of the discussion around waste and like there's a lot of shaming around the like oranges that are cut up and put in plastic. And on the one hand, it's like, wow, more plastic being used. But on the other hand, there are many people who have certain kinds of disabilities, um, arthritis, um, are older or for whatever reason, they actually can't peel an orange, right? But those things are charged at higher markup. So we have a lot of levels of shaming people um, and creating greater disparities between individuals. And so one thing that I really want to bring in when I'm thinking about feminism, environmentalism, and food is to think about like, what are environmental discourses doing? Are they creating further disparities, right? Like what are the issues of sexism and racism and classism and ableism and in some cases heterosexism that are happening within this environmentalist rhetoric? And how are these choices being placed on or displaced on to individuals rather than on this kind of systematic change that we need that can actually support people to have access to fresh, healthy food? I I really, I like that example a lot. I mean, I don't like it, but I appreciate the example about the higher markup for packaging, right, for someone with disabilities if they can't do that. I think that those are really important to illustrate so, like, such a broader issue, whereas to explain what ableism means in the food system is going to be a lot harder maybe for someone who, if this is a new idea for them or if they haven't thought about it before, but a specific example like that of, you know, if you can't peel an orange, you're going to need that um, you know, you're going to need to cut up for them. But what does that mean for environmentalism also if it is charged more? Um, so could, could you speak maybe to some, like you mentioned, you know, larger structural changes or systemic changes? What might some of those be if we're trying to really address these broader issues of all the isms and everything that you just mentioned? Yeah, so in the U.S. context, I can think of restructuring the farm bill as a really important example. Um, because that will change the way that money is allocated to farmers, which then has an effect on the cost of what are like specialized crops, like things like broccoli is considered a specialized crop in under, uh, U.S. agriculture. So the move came away from like corn and soy to other types of crops and like what's supported, um, allowing for more support of like smaller farms. 
um, that can have greater biodiversity, which then has like environmental impacts, um, allowing SNAP to be used at farmers markets, which is the case in some farmers markets, but not all, um, to raise the amount of money given to people receiving food stamps and to have like a greater amount um, to buy uh, fresh foods, but also to not have so much surveillance over the foods that people are buying because um, governmental surveillance through uh, SNAP cards is a huge issue. Um, here in Canada, our farm system is structured a bit differently. Um, but again, these kinds of moves away from support of really large farms that have been kind of the corporate model uh, throughout much of the 20th and into the 21st century, um, having like greater access to like farm education, uh, having more community gardens and community spaces, uh, there's a lot of it has to do with kind of governmental restructuring of what is subsidized and supported and what kind of educational programs are supported, um, as well as having things like home ec classes for people of all genders um, in schools. And so there's a lot of changes that can be done on kind of larger um, systematic issues that will have effects that are positive for our waterways, for our soil and for our air pollution. Now, Alex, in um, your work, you mentioned like utopian, like a utopia vision. Um, what utopia would you hope for? And are there like previous utopian models um, that we could recreate? And has there been any, any success in this that you found in any of your research? Or, um, you know, how would we go about creating a utopian-like future? That's, oh. a <laughs> That's a big question. Um, I'm much better at like criticizing <laughs> governments. Um, but uh, <laughs> um, in terms of like utopias, so I teach a course on feminist utopias and mm -hmm. world making actually. And so the like a huge part of that course is that everyone's utopia is going to be quite different um, and will be quite individualized. And what may be utopia for me might be dystopia for someone else. Um, but I would actually say that a utopic world for me would be a more socially just world in that there's more equity for people, no matter their identities um, and where they come from. And part of that means that people will have the food they need to survive, education, housing, healthcare on all of those levels. Um, and what that means, like when it comes to kind of food systems or small food businesses, like that works out on a lot of different kinds of layers. But if people are, are able to have the basics that they need, um, I think that we will be in a much better place to address um, our other kind of systematic issues around uh, global warming and climate change, um, as well as pollution and so forth. And that it's really, really hard, right? Of course, there's so many different issues that need to be worked on all at once. So. Um, but the whole point is, like, you can never actually reach utopia. Um, but I think it's something to strive, not not necessarily striving towards utopia, but striving towards justice and equity. I love that. I love that. And uh, all those words, and <laughs> we talk about justice and equity and um, inclusion, all of that. Um, I'm so happy that those... It's it, it's seems like it's more widely understood and that there's so many more there's so much more focus on doing that in all aspects of our life, not even just just food, even though it's what we're here to talk about. Um, but completely talking about a dystopian nightmare. 
Um, <laughs> you talk, you also in your research uh, look at uh, like feminism and technology and AI. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so like that just makes me think about like misogynistic robots. <laughs> like what is <laughs> what yeah. is the yeah. intersection of feminism and AI? We also we had another a guest come on and she talked about technology and feminism. Um, but it was it was about like hashtags and social media and creating community and stuff. So I was so interested to say, okay, technology and feminism again, but thinking about it um, with with AI. So I, I'd love to know what that that's all about. Yeah, so that's a really big topic. Um, I would recommend there's a documentary that's coming out. It's come out, but it's like in small circulation right now called Coded Bias, which is a really good kind of intro to it. Um, but the issue is that to be brief, is that we act as if oftentimes that AI takes away bias from decision-making because there's the sense that the algorithms are unbiased and it's just math. But actually what happens is the kinds of biases and inequities that we see across society get perpetuated and even magnified um, because they're in the data sets and the AI spits this out. Um, so... The way that I tie this to food, and I can actually tie this back to food if you like, <laughs> um, and the reason I got into it is so uh, as I had been really interested right, in these kinds of uh, critiques around food and household work, and then that led to kind of the feminist restaurant research in the 70s and 80s, I was reading a lot of feminist periodicals, feminist and lesbian periodicals. That was a huge part of my methodology to find these restaurants and so forth. Like, I was the first one to create the database about feminist restaurants, um, which you can find on the website. Anyone can reference it and see the maps I made awesome. um, if you're interested in that. Um, but so I really enjoy reading uh, periodicals from that period. And I'm also, like, I really enjoy kind of 70s and 80s feminist um, takes and, like, critiquing them. Um, as well, but also looking at kind of like cyber feminist critiques that happened in the 90s. And there's this book that I really like um, called From Counterculture to Cyberculture by Fred Turner, in which he maps out the way that uh, the kinds of communes that you see in like the 60s and 70s goes back to the land movements, how they kind of paved the way for what he calls the kind of new um the new countercultural movement in cyber culture. So it looks at the history of the whole Earth catalog and Stuart brand. And I really like this book for a lot of reasons, but one of my issues with the book is that it really only talks about white men. Um, it only really talks about white men's history of moving from these kind of countercultural movements to these cybercultural movements. And so what I'm working on now, one of my projects I'm working on now is looking at uh, what feminists were saying, what these kinds of like feminist critiques of these cybercultural movements are like starting. Like, so basically I'm writing a parallel history um, that is more inclusive. That's not just like the white men's perspective. Um, and part of what that has led me to, and as part of this like speaker series I run is also like current critiques um, by feminists, um, by women of color, um, by anti-racist um, activists, um, who are critiquing a lot of the systematic issues with AI um, and data science. So there's like, that can be addressed in a lot of ways. So I do see this as being tied to kind of food issues and these kind of countercultural movements, 
that are so um, intertied with uh, the production of journals and websites that are creating a dialogue about here's this large systematic thing happening and here's kind of feminist perspectives of it. I actually was most interested in you talking about AI and kind of Sandy's comment about robotics because I just today saw an article about a new robot called Flippy which um, is owned by White Castle Burger and can flip burgers and fry food. So it is essentially the start of eliminating um, fast food restaurant work. Um, So yeah, Flippy um, owned by White Castle from Miso Robotics. Wow. So it's really interesting you bring that up. So there's this really great article, again, it's like totally free for your readers. Um, it's by Astra Taylor called The Automation Charade. And it's this interesting piece that talks about the way that uh, corporations really want us to think that kind of a lot of robotics and a lot of technology is in a place that is actually further than it is. And that a lot of it is still really dependent on humans. So, for example, um, in the piece, she talks about uh, someone goes to pick up an order and was like, how did the app know that it would be ready? Like, I'd be here 30 minutes early. And the person behind the counter says, it wasn't the app, it was me. (laughs) But we kind of lose a lot of sense, right, of like that there's actually oftentimes people behind this tech that we don't see. But with the charade of automation, it allows for there to be either a de-skilling of work as a way to underpay workers, right? As a way of saying, oh, this isn't skilled work anymore. You don't have to do it. Or to have consumers actually take people's jobs, right? So like if you go to McDonald's, for example, right? You, at uh, McDonald's now, you touch a touch screen, right? So it's like taking mm-hmm. away that person from a job. So there are jobs that are being lost to robotics, but also it's really interesting how Um, and disturbing how the food industry has really kind of capitalized on this in like a couple situations. Uh, We also have, I haven't been to it, but there's like a robot in Montreal as well that apparently flips burgers. Um, And right, but there's still like the people working at that restaurant. So there's this push, right, of trying to make workers feel disempowered and less likely to want to unionize um, and work for collective um, bargaining rights. And then also there's this really, um, I don't know if I can mention another podcast while on this podcast. Yes, please do. (laughs) Okay. So uh, Rose Eveleth has this podcast called Flash Forward, and she has an episode about the future of food, but she historicizes part of it and looks at this early robot model that was introduced at the World's Fair, I want to say in the 1930s. Um, and the idea was that it would take over farming. It didn't actually work. Um, but we see a lot of kind of like robotics being used more and more in farms. So it's this interesting tension in that uh, like our food system is relying more and more on uh, technology. But at the same time, part of it is also marketing as a way to like uh, casualize work. Um, and disempower workers, right? So, like, not like the whole idea of like, uh, like Uber Eats and all of those type of things as well. You could put um, in there. That that's interesting. There's like a little part of me that is like, I don't know, is that just like ignoring a real problem for some conspiracy theory? 
um, that like, oh, they're trying to disempower workers. There's like a little part of me that thinks that, but then really like you were saying there, it has tangible effects like um, workers, you know, uh, not wanting to unionize and not, you know, feeling really um, uh, disempowered and all that. And like that would, that actually really would benefit um, those larger corporations. If we're talking about like, you know, working for a, a large corporation and you're at the bottom of the bottom of the run there, but um, yeah, and what we oftentimes see is that it doesn't actually save corporations like money to have the robot versus the worker in many of these situations, but it does mean that they're not dealing with people and like having to negotiate, right? So that's one of the things is like taking the worker out of the work um, or trying to is kind of this push that we see. So um, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's paranoid. Uh, there's there's <laughs> A lot of people who... Uh, well, I think that brings us right back to the uh, idea of needing uh, some kind of utopian society, because if people weren't dependent on manual labor for their income to provide basic shelter, food, and medical care for themselves and their family, um, this really wouldn't be of, of great concern. It would actually be, you know, something we could celebrate that we were alleviating people from you know, everyday tasks in order to allow them to free them up to, to do things they might um, find more enjoyable or more that they might be more passionate about. But since that's not the case, um, robots are so concerning in my world. Yeah. <laughs> until, until we have a guaranteed basic income, I'm going to be concerned about Flippy the robot at White Castle. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Ruth Schwartz Cohen has this great book. It's like a classic text from the 1980s called More Work for Mother. And in it, she looks at the history of household technologies and makes the argument that most of the technologies that we see that happen in a household took away men's labor, like the gendered men's labor from the household. Not that there's anything like inherently like male labor in the household or like female labor, right? But like the kinds of tasks that men would oftentimes do tied to the household, that gets replaced by machines or things that you can go and buy. Whereas oftentimes women's labor gets increased by the technologies. So she looks at like washing machines and then the kind of push to like wash your clothes more often and so forth. And so in the book, she talks about um, people like Charlotte Perkins Gilman, who at the start of the 20th century had proposed having like living spaces where all of the families shared one giant kitchen and one person was doing the cooking for everyone and like rotated or different kinds of models of living. But rather than industrializing those parts of the home, we industrialized other things. Um, so it is interesting, like what we take for granted of like what has to be home labor and what has to become industrialized or techno technologized, I guess, um, is it's really how we're socialized. At the same time, I really like cooking. So right, there's always that tension there too. Yeah, that, that does not seem like a conspiracy theory to think that men's work got industrialized and women's work did not. That seems like that would be very intentional. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So Alex, our hour is almost coming to a close and I just feel like there's so much more that we could talk about, but I think it's important to ask you kind of straightforward, what do you think is the intersection of food and feminism? So in short, I would say that the intersection is actually labor and environment in two words, if I had to, because um, I really see it as playing out within working conditions in so many different ways, as we've talked about. 
And I also see it really playing out within kind of environmental impact. We need to find more people who are, who can speak to that intersection between feminism and environmentalism, because I, I do feel like at least to my own knowledge that I was well aware that um, marginalized groups as far as um, minorities and low income were more exposed to um, pollution and, and uh, climate change events like severe weather or flooding and things like Mm -hmm. that. Um, But I guess I never really thought that if there was a gender disparity in that as well. And so bringing that up is definitely a new perspective, um, at least for me, maybe not for anyone else, but for me, it is. (laughs) (laughs) That's what this is all about. So um, you, we, we talked a lot about how to start a feminist restaurant, which is one of your little books. And you also have other work and other books Um, Why don't you take a minute Mm -hmm. and tell our listeners about other books you might have, other work you might have out there. Where can they find you online? Because I know everyone's going to want to just follow up on all this that we've talked about. Um, So just take a few minutes and tell us anything that you want about your work and what you're studying now. Wonderful. Okay, so the easiest place to find me online is alexketchum.ca. So it's K E T. C-H-U-M. It's like ketchup, but with an M instead of a P. Um, And that links to all of my other websites, uh, thefeministrestaurantproject.com, historicalcookingproject.com. You can follow me on Twitter at aketchum22. So I have a new uh, small book that uh, just came out this month on how to organize inclusive events, um, which takes into account sustainability, sustainability, accessibility and feminism and so part of it also involves like if you have food at events and there's also um, information on cyber virtual events um, since we are in the age of corona right now. Uh, I really am committed to making most of my scholarship very accessible so if you go to my website you'll find links to open access versions of almost everything that I've written including my 360-page dissertation on the topic of feminist restaurants. It's all free. Uh, There's a lot of articles. I have recordings of interviews I've done. Uh, There's links to the maps. I really want the work that I do to be uh, mostly freely available, and both of the books sell for under $6 as well, um, because I really am committed to making uh, knowledge and scholarship more accessible. (laughs) <laughs> That's great. Thank you for that, Alex. And I love to hear about the um, accessibility and inclusion. It might have seemed unheard of in academia to share some things so freely, you know, a, a while ago, or maybe not even that long ago, actually. But it's definitely a very cool trend about just making things open source, publicly available, low cost, all of that for exactly the reasons that you just mentioned. Yeah, I think it's important, especially I work at a public funded institution. So my money does come uh, from the government, from the public taxpayers. But also the thing that a lot of people don't realize is that I don't get paid for any of my academic publications. Uh, So academic authors don't get paid for any of those articles they're writing. Oftentimes the editors aren't being paid, the peer reviewers aren't. So it's really only uh, the journal publication, distributors like Elsevier and stuff that are making the money. Um, And another tip um, for your listeners is that if they ever are looking for an academic piece, like on Google Scholar or whatever, um, there's a little button that you can click that says to check repositories because a lot of academics will put this thing called a preprint. So basically 
the exact same article, but not formatted um, into their university repository. So you can access maybe a version of the article for free also. That's great. I um, am just finishing up my bachelor's degree. So these are tips that I wish I had had a couple of months ago <laughs> when I was writing quite a few essays. Um, thank you so much, Alex, for joining us. And I feel like we could follow up with you again in the future because I am left with a few more questions. Um, but I also awesome. feel like you have really kind of broadened my perspective. I had no idea that feminist restaurants even existed. Um <laughs> or, or anarchist restaurants, which you also briefly ma- mentioned. Ooh, yes, that's for another podcast. Let's talk about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm down. <laughs> um, and I also want to note that you said that in your um, book about inclusive events that this involves food. So I think Sandy, as you mentioned, my nine different versions of ragu. I think Alex would really appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Next time you find yourself in the states, we're gonna have a potluck. <laughs> Okay, so sounds good. Listeners, as always, this has been another episode of Femidish. You can find out more about this podcast project, exploring the intersections of food and feminism, at www.femidish.com. That's F-E-M-I-D-I-S-H. We are also on. Let's see, what are we on? We are on Instagram and Facebook as Femidish, um, and you can always email us at femidish at gmail.com. We love to answer questions um, and to forward questions on to previous guests and also to get input about who you might want to hear from next. So thank you again, Alex. And as always, thank you, Sandy. Thanks, everyone. Glad to be here. We were trying to save the world I was picking up the house Why don't you put it down? Come over Come over